This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number three of the series dealing with the prophecy of Isaiah. We shall read a few verses from the second book of Chronicles, chapter 26. The second book of Chronicles, chapter 26. Then all the people of Judah took Isaiah, who was sixteen years old, and made him king in the room of his father Amaziah. He built Enoch and restored it to Judah after that the kings slept with his fathers. King slept with his fathers. Sixteen years old was Isaiah when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty and two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah did. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah who had understanding in the visions of God and as long as he sought the Lord God made him prosper. There's just a faintest little wonder in that last bit, isn't there? And as long as he sought the Lord God No, I'm sorry. As long as he sought the Lord God made him to prosper. But didn't he keep on seeking? Well, you read the rest of this chapter, but I'll pick it up again at verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him fourscore priests of the Lord, they were valiant men, and they withstood Isaiah the king and said unto him, it appertaineth not unto thee, Isaiah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed, neither shall it be for thine honour from the Lord God. Then Isaiah was wroth, and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. But while he was wroth with the priests, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked upon him, and behold he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. And Isaiah the king was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several house, being a leper. For he was cut off from the house of the Lord, and Jotam his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now that's a very dreadful passage, isn't it? Shall we now turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and you will see that there is a, a link between that record of King Isaiah and the prophecy that we are about to consider. The sixth chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. Now we have looked in passing, and very much in the large, at the five chapters that have preceded this. We can head them, if we wish for headings, as rebellion, ruin, and then restoration. The restoration comes in, in two sort of small passages, in between the large ones which speak so much of their ruin. That is chapter 2, where it speaks about, in verse 2, it shall come to pass in the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established and so on. 
And then again in chapter 4, it speaks about the day when there shall be a cleansing and a washing and a creating and a shining uh, at Jerusalem. Uh, but um, it doesn't say quite how it's going to be brought about and by whom. Uh, perhaps we shall see a little bit more closely when we look at chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord. Now you see, there's definitely a relationship between those two. He doesn't say, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, because that would be merely an historic statement, like November the 5th, I did something, at the end of it. But this is, I saw also. Now why also? Well, he said, you see, you who know the history of Isaiah, you know that he dared to unite in his own person the office of king and priest. And God would never permit that in the Old Testament. There's only one who was a king-priest and he wasn't anything to do with Israel. That was Melchizedek. He stands alone. He had no father, no mother, no genealogy, no appointment, no start, no finish. And remained just a type and a shadow of Christ himself. All other priests that came along in the Bible are priests after the order of Aaron. And they were all failures. They were all imperfect. There's only one who could, could unite in himself the office of king-priest. So in the year that one king dared to usurp that office of Christ, I saw also the Lord. And he, as a king, was in the temple. Now, if you turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 12, you'll see that John, referring to this period, he definitely says that Isaiah spoke of Christ. It says in chapter 12, um, verse 39, Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory, and spake of him. Of course you want to see who the he is in the chapter, you realise he's speaking of Christ. So now Isaiah, in a vision, saw the ascended, seated Christ as king, sitting in a temple. So we have the answer. Who is able to break the seals, to open the books. No man was found worthy in heaven or earth. And John, writing in the Revelation, says he wept, because to have reached this point and then no one worthy to take the whole of God's purpose through to its end was enough to make anyone weep. And then he was reminded that the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, oh friend, you need not sit over there, that was only one lady's seat reserved for her, that's right, plenty of room, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And then you may remember a certain element of astonishment. He said, a Lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. But he said, when I turned to look, what did I see? A Lion? I saw a Lamb. And not even a Lamb. I saw a Lamb as it had been slain. Now, those are some of the things that we get linked together. So coming back to Isaiah 6, which is our study this afternoon, we have in this first verse, a suggestion that the only answer to all problems that are associated with the restoration and the blessing that God has in store when the purpose of the ages is reached will be brought about only by this one 
who can rightfully occupy the place that Isaiah the king usurped and was made a leper, the king priest. You'll find in the prophet of Zechariah there's a suggestion again about this king priest. He shall be a priest upon his throne and the covenant of peace shall be between them both. Never is that possible until Christ himself fulfills that double office. A king priest. So it says, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also, the word also is suggestive, the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Well now we have a reference to some peculiar beings, and they are called seraphim. There's no reason to have an S on the end, for I-M in the Hebrew language is the plural. So seraphim's is a little bit of a mistake. It won't matter, they won't mind up there in glory if you put an S on the end or not, but seraphim and cherubim are more true. Now, who are are seraphim? Well, if you'll notice what it says about them, we may discover. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Will you turn for a moment to the book of the Revelation, chapter 4. Here we have another throne set up. Because the day is now dawning when you reach this prophetic period when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The restoration that Isaiah had in view is now about to take place. Chapter 4. But the passage I want you to notice is verse um, 8. And the four, now it says beasts, which is such a pity. There is one beast in the book of the Revelation, and that means a fierce wild beast. That's the anti-Christian monster that will one day dominate this earth, for the poor old earth is getting ready for him. The, un- the union of all the earth with regard to its uh, missiles, with regard to uh, its uh, churches, with regard to its police force. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. And then he's going to dominate the world. But here we have living creatures. The very word which is used in the prophet Ezekiel when he described them. Living creatures. And the four living creatures had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. So those living creatures that have the six wings and say, Holy, 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 are very, very much like, almost an allusion back to Isaiah 6, when they had the six wings and they said, Holy, Holy, Holy. Would you say, why are they called seraphim? Well, that's just because we do not speak Hebrew. If we were acquainted with Hebrew as an ordinary everyday language, we know that the cherubim could be called seraphim if they were glowing with brightness. It's only another name for the same thing. Now, I'm going to use this for a moment, not to try to explain what I don't understand myself, but to demonstrate that there is a superintendence by the Spirit of God for many of the key words in any book. I don't see how it's humanly possible for anybody to write an ordinary book and without giving you the slightest indication 
If you search into that book, you discover that the very key words are distributed according to a pattern. You won't find that in an ordinary person's book, but you find it in the scriptures. So when you look for a moment, I hope you can see this chart under the word seraph in Isaiah. We have in the first um, first chapter, verse 7, the word seraph, but you won't see it in your English, but we'll make sure we see it now. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. The word seraph means something which burns with fire. And the first reference is just an ordinary reference to burning with fire. That's the first reference. Will you look at the last reference? Chapter 44, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah 44, verses 10 and 11. Um... Jerusalem is again here spoken of as desolate. Have I got the wrong... Uh, 64. No, there's no 64. Uh, that needs to be rectified in a bit. Oh! No. I'll, I'll have to leave that for the time being to discover and alter that chart, friends. I'm sorry. Uh, time will not be permit me. You find it for me and tell me presently, will you? If, eh? Is it? Oh, I see. All right, then. Yes, well, I've just a bit sort of lost me bearings for a minute. 64. Oh, well, we're back again. Yes, I misread it. That's right. 10 and 11. The holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire, and all our pleasant things are laid waste. There's the first and the last reference to burning with fire. The first one and the last is to do with this holy city. And it says, none call upon him. Well now, we come back again. Chapter 6 we see is in the temple. And there we find the live coal and the charge, no understanding. We'll just look at that to make sure. Chapter 6, verse 2 we've read. And then, verse 6, And then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, and it says, Go ye and tell this people, they shall not understand. Now you look at the second from the end, and this has to do with Babylon. Now this, this is really 40, at least I hope so this time. 47. 47, verse 14. Uh, behold, they shall be as stubble, the fire shall burn them, they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame, there, there shall not be a cold or warm at, nor fire to sit before. Uh, this, thus shall they be unto thee, and so on. And you'll, you'll realise that this is a judgment upon Babylon, who would not lay things to heart. Then in the centre, we have a peculiar passage, chapter 9, 5, that leads up to a prophecy. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire, for unto us a child is born. And in chapter um, 44, 16 and 19, 44, 16 and 19, 
He burneth a part thereof in the fire, this is idolatry. With part thereof he eateth flesh, he roasteth roast, he's satisfied. Yea, he warmeth himself and saith, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And then in 19, and none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge or understanding to say, I burn part of it in the fire, and so on and so on. I don't want to dwell on this too long because of time. But you see, even if you take this peculiar word and see the way in which it's distributed through the prophet Isaiah, you see that there is a superintendence over its distribution, which I think may be justified, we may have been justified in spending these few minutes. Now we'll go back again. These wonderful beings, the cherubim, which are here spoken of as glowing and burning like with fire, have six wings. And if the Bible was shut and we didn't read it, uh, if you said, what are wings for? I suppose we should blurt out, to fly with. Well, that's very natural. But in this case, you see, the six wings are not used in that way. With train, he covered his face. With train, he covered his feet. Now, that is recognition of the holiness of the God they serve. They only need two to fly with, but they needed four to recognize the character of their service. I have a feeling we do well sometimes to remind ourselves that service is not the number of meetings you conduct or the miles you travel. Service is a holier thing than that. And so with train, they covered their face. With train, they covered their feet. With train, they did fly. And you see that holiness in a moment is going to be another experience by the prophet himself. It's a subject which is almost too wonderful for us to touch upon, but it's the ultimate one. While we stress and are glad to say that God is a God of grace, a God of mercy, and a God of love, you do remember that it also says in the same book that our God is a consuming fire. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Now, if the holiness that you and I have got to work up and manufacture, God help us. We should never do it. But our salvation includes acceptance in the Beloved. Without it, we couldn't have a blessed hope. It would be disaster instead of something to be desired. So here we are. And they cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now here again we have another one. The whole earth. Will you notice at the bottom of this chart that there again, that expression is running through the prophet Isaiah in a perfect pattern. In this chapter 6, the whole earth is full of his glory and there's a forsaking in the midst of the land, it says at the end of this chapter. And then in chapter 54, verse 5, we have, we have him re referred to as the God of the whole earth and he says concerning Jerusalem, I have for a moment forsaken thee. So there he begins and ends this perfect pattern. And then we have in chapter 12, 5, these words, Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. And then you have water out of the wells of salvation. And looking at chapter 28, verse 22, you'll sure enough find a reference to water there in the contrasting uh, usage. 28, verse 22.
Now therefore be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong, for I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption, even determined upon the whole earth. And if you read the context, you'll see there is a reference to the water again, which this time is used in judgment. And without turning to the other passages, you might note them, you have a rest, and strangely enough, a grave for a king, which is balanced by rest and death swallowed up in victory. The two sides. And then the central one, the purpose of God and Assyria broken. I've only put those there because they do demonstrate that there is a superintendence over the use of even words in the scripture that you do well sometimes to ponder. Well now let's get back, shall we, to the message of the book. This Isaiah 6 plays a very important part in the New Testament. There are three passages of supreme importance in the New Testament where Isaiah 6 is quoted. I refer to one when we refer to the 12th chapter of John's Gospel. That is the last chapter in John's Gospel that deals with the outside world. After that, chapter 13, our Saviour turns to his own disciples and then is led away to crucifixion and finally resurrection. So the last words practically of John 12 is a quotation from Isaiah 6 and the quotation is this. Verse 9 Go and tell this people Hear ye indeed but understand not and see ye indeed but perceive not Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their eyes and say they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Will you then turn to the other two passages where this occurs with great importance in the New Testament? First of all, in Matthew, the 13th chapter. Leading up to the 13th chapter, we have our Saviour starting his ministry, the whole land, one into the other, shaken by miracle after miracle, and eventually he upbraids the cities where his mighty works were done because they did not repent and said it would be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for some of them. Then in chapter 12, he says that the greater than the temple is here, the greater than Solomon is here, the greater than Jonah is here, that's someone who is greater than prophet, priest and king. And then in chapter 13, we have parables. And the parables are not given for simple reading, like making stories that will illustrate the gospel. The reason they are given is just the opposite. Verse 10. The disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto us, unto them in parables? And he didn't say to make it easy for them to appreciate. He said, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. And going on, he says, uh, the, because he said, therefore, verse 13, speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Well, now, what took place with regard to God's own people in the land when they rejected Christ, for this is where his rejection is started now to come onto the surface, took place in Rome with the Apostle Paul. He also quoted this passage, and that is of supreme importance so far as we are concerned, the 28th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. 
Now, the dividing line of the Acts of the Apostles, so far as we are concerned, is not the day of Pentecost, or not Paul's ministry in Acts 13 when he started on his great mission. But our dividing line is when the people of Israel were set aside, as they have been throughout the present nearly 2,000 years, and the salvation of God was sent to the Gentiles independently of the Jew. Up till then, the Jew was first. In the epistle to the Romans, the Gentile who was justified by faith and saved by grace was nevertheless reminded that dispensationally he was but a wild olive graft contrary to nature. Now we have a change. Here we have in Acts 28 these words. Verse 17, it came to pass that after three days Paul called the chief of the Jews together and then when they desired it, he spent, you'll find in verse 23, a whole day. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning to evening. And when they did not agree or believe, he quoted for the last time Isaiah 6 in scripture, verse 25, Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet. Then, having quoted Isaiah 6, he says in verse 28, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Now in verse 30, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, and received all that came in unto him. That balances his lodging in verse 23. Preaching the kingdom of God. That balances verse 23. Testified the kingdom of God. And preaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a little different. Because he preached, or he persuaded them concerning Jesus. Notice the change. Jesus. But when he comes into his full prison ministry, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 23, he found his message in the law of Moses and the prophets. But there's no reference to the law of Moses and the prophets in the last verse, because now he tells you in Ephesians and in Colossians that he had received the dispensation of the mystery which had been hid in God, but only now revealed. So that's where the church of the one body comes in. Gentiles are not wild grafts contrary to nature now. They are equal members in a body uh, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, but Christ is all. Well, that, of course, we mustn't go on too far, otherwise we should not even give Isaiah 6 a hearing. But that is one of the reasons why this chapter is so important to us all. Now, we come back again. What was the effect upon Isaiah himself when he saw this vision and heard these words, Holy, Holy, Holy. There is a hymn which we very seldom sing in this chapel, because it is so wonderfully sacred, Eternal Light, Eternal Light. How pure that soul must be, to stand in that light. Well, that's what Isaiah realised. Fancy Isaiah, a prophet, one who had stood up and spoken in the name of God. He suddenly realises, what he must be in the sight of God as he stands by himself. And then said I, this is, this is Isaiah, then said I, woe is me. For I am undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? What's the matter with you, Isaiah? 
Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That was the reason. The sudden revelation. Most of us at some time or another have seen a beam of sunlight suddenly coming down perhaps a long passage or into a room. And however much they use a uh, uh, cleaner, a vacuum cleaner in that house, sure as the sunshine goes through it, immediately after they've used it, it'll be filled with little specks of dust. Now the sunshine doesn't create the dust. It only shows what's there all the time. So when you and I stand in that presence in that day, if we're not standing in Christ completely and, and full acceptance in him, we shall be like Isaiah. We shall say, woe is me, I'm undone. And then Isaiah was a prophet. And the prophet was one that used his lips. You might notice that just in the same way as Isaiah is here starting his great ministry and there's a reference to his speech. Look at chapter 1 of, of, of the prophet Jeremiah just by way of balance. Jeremiah chapter 1. Then, verse 6, Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Isaiah said, Oh, I cannot speak, for I am undone. I am unclean. This man put another view. He says, Oh, I am but a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand, and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. So here we have uh, Jeremiah with one experience, Isaiah having a similar one, not exactly the same. God meeting the needs of both of them. One feeling is inability, the other feeling is unworthiness. The inability was God said, I'll put my words in your mouth. The unworthiness is, and I will cleanse thy mouth. So we're coming to that. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. The altar was the place of sacrifice. And this man's sanctification was by sacrifice. There is an insistence in the part of some types of teaching of a sanctification by the Spirit, which is true, as long as you keep it in its right order. But if you follow the order of sanctification as it's set forth in the book of Leviticus, in its types and shadows, you find that when the leper was being cleansed, first of all, the blood of the atonement was placed upon his ear, upon his right thumb, and upon his right big toe. Then it says a significant thing. You shall take the olive oil and you shall put the oil upon the place of the blood. Sanctification by the Spirit is only acceptable in the sight of God if there's been the previous sanctification by the blood of Christ. If you ignore that, you get all these holiness movements that sometimes end up in such shocking disaster. So here we have the Apostle. The live coal was taken from the altar and he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also, is another also coming in. Also, I saw something, I also heard something. Oh, that's the right order. First of all, I see myself, and that is, that is touched by God. Then I heard a voice. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us? Now here's a wonderful condescension, isn't it? The Lord didn't say to Isaiah, now you go. No. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then Isaiah didn't turn around and say, I'm going. He No. He said, here am I, send me. Notice the emphasis upon the sending. And if you've never done it, do it once. Go through the Gospel according to John and underline every time you come to the word send or sent. And by the time you've done it, you realise what a word it is. Even in John 17, the great prayer of Christ, he prays that the world may believe and the world may know that thou hast sent me. When the blind man was told to go wash in the pool of Siloam, John couldn't help himself but to put in brackets the word Siloam in sent. He even says that. And Romans, the 10th chapter, says, How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they've gone to a theological college and got stuff? Oh, I'm sorry, it doesn't say that. How shall they preach except they be sent? Or as many a preacher that is an eloquent person and doesn't make the slips that I do and can't read his own handwriting. He may be able to confuse you and confound you with his knowledge. But if he's never been sent, his words will fall to the ground. Because after all said and done, this is a message that we have. Not an invention. Not a deduction. It's a message that the Most High is sending by the hand of a messenger. That's all. And the Gospel, Evangel, is the word E, U, or E-V, in front of the word angel. And the word angel means a messenger. I'm an angel, wouldn't you believe it, would you? But not in one sense, of course, but in the sense of being sent with a message to give you from the Most High. God forbid that I should open the envelope and rewrite the message before I give it to you because I don't like it or you may be offended. I mustn't do that. I know if you live in a country village, the postman tells everybody all around that so-and-so's daughter's coming home because he reads the postcard before he takes it. But that's simple, that's understood, but not in this case. Whom shall I send? And who will go for me? And he said, Then said I unto him, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Now what a message to receive. Not go and tell this people, Rejoice and be glad, the Redeemer has come, and all that. Oh, you don't mind going for that, but all to think he's got to say this. And some people have been rather stumbled when it says make the heart of these people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes. But there are occasions in the scripture where you get such emphasis on things that they have to, res- they have to make resort to figures of speech. Now you'll find a similar uh, figure in the story of Joseph. He was in prison and uh, he foretold that Pharaoh would behead the butler and he would raise the baker back to his own office or else it's the other way around. I'm sure uh, God knew what he was doing, I'm forgetting. But when it was all over, it says, the man says, that's just exactly me he restored to office and him he hanged. Well, Joseph didn't hang anybody and he didn't restore anybody. But he prophesied it should be. So that's what it is here. Go and tell this people. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to hear. But you won't understand. You're going to see. But you're not going to perceive. 
because you've shut your heart and ears and eyes against this truth. So I put on this chart, you see, if we glance at the top, Isaiah, a type of Israel, but an anticipation of the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ. The Holy Lord, thrice holy, and then the word Eretz, the fullness and the glory. Then we have the central part. Then said I, and he said. Uh, I've just used words beginning with the letter C. Uh, don't bother about those if you don't like it. Confession, unclean. Cleansing, I and lip, and then he heard. Consecration, send me. Commission, their eye, their ear, their heart. Commiseration, how long? And then combination, the word we don't use very much, meaning very parallel to the whole place being condemned and wasted. And then we get back again to the word eretz, which means the earth, a forsaking in the midst. And then we get the tithe, a type of the remnant. And then we get the holy seed balancing the holy Lord. Now let's go on a bit further before our time is up. Then said I, verse 11, Lord, how long? Do you notice this? The man doesn't jump to it and say, well, I'm glad to have a message like this. They are such a lot of miserable sinners. I'll be only too glad to go out and preach hell for all I'm worth. He said, oh no, I've been in the presence of the Holy God and I had to confess I needed a Redeemer. I needed a Saviour. I needed to be cleansed. Oh, I belong to a people, he said, of unclean lips. I'm like them. And I'm sure God was glad when Isaiah didn't say, that's just the message I want to take. He said, oh no. Judgment's a strange thing with God. He's a God of mercy, but you've got to do this first, Isaiah. How long? And the Lord, and he answered, until, until, the cities be wasted without inhabitants, and the houses without men, and land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Now you wouldn't see, of course, the word there, earth, but it is. The midst of the earth, or the land. Same word. But yet, now here we get one of those little interpositions. You get them in the epistles, and they're, they're so well worth pausing over. But now, after speaking about our own position by nature, saying that the Gentiles were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope of without God in the world, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes are far off, you see, but now, or in the same chapter, we were dominated by the spirit of the prince of the power of the air, children of wrath even as others, but God do his rich in mercy. Don't forget, but. I've mentioned it so many times, it's so important. It pulls you up to the stop and says, now don't take that argument any further. There's a contrast in it. But is said to be both an adversative and an arrestive conjunction. Big words, aren't they? An adversative, something in opposition. Arrested, stops you. So God says, although I've said this terrible thing to you, Isaiah, yet, what does he say? But, yet, there shall be in it a tent. Now all the way through the scriptures, you'll read about a remnant. We shall find it presently in Isaiah, a remnant shall return. A remnant. Unless the Lord hath left us, 
a remnant like the, uh, which have been like Sodom. Am I quoting from memory or is it right uh, that we have in chapter 1 verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been like as Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. A small remnant. And I believe still, Romans 11 says that God hath not given up all Israel. There's still a remnant according to the election of grace. And in the days when the prophet said, I only am left and they seek my life, what was the answer of God to him? There are yet 7,000 men who have not bowed a knee to the image of Baal. A remnant. So here we have it. Now you say, how do you make this remnant out? Oh, well, the tenth. But how can a tenth? Well, what is a tenth? A tithe. And the tithe was the portion set apart for God. He said, I'll never be without my portion. I'll never be without that remnant that belongs to me. And the remnant being set apart for God is a pledge. Because in Romans 11, where it speaks about the remnant, it says the first fruits. And if the first fruits, what about the harvest that's coming? So the tenth is a pledge in the midst of all this. It shall return and shall be eaten. This tenth was going to go through the mill, as it were, as a teal tree and as an oak. I'm not sure about the teal tree. We know something about an oak. Whose substance is in themselves, or is in them. This is rather complicated. When they cast their leaves. Now, you notice the word their leaves are not there. They've been put in to make sense. But sometimes they obscure the things. Because it isn't their leaves that are cast, it's when they themselves cast or fall down. When they fall down, even these trees, they've got the substance within them, the holy seed. That shall be the substance thereof. Uh, not exactly the same expression, but leading in the same direction. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. So we have in this Isaiah 6 a stop, a wonderful prophecy, a looking down the age, some parts that bear even upon our own calling because they're quoted in Acts 28 before our calling comes into the scriptures, and then looking down to the end when this people shall be redeemed and blessed. Now we've got to take up the story when we look at Isaiah again later on but I think our time is up. So we've now had before us the outline of Isaiah. We've had the suggestion that some of these key words are superintended by the Spirit of God in the way they're distributed. We've seen the glory of our Saviour suggested in the vision, the king priest in the temple, and we've seen something about the three words that are associated with ministry. What are the three words? We have them in their order. Woe is me. You don't think much of yourself. Lo, this has touched your lips. That's your ordination. That's your consecration. Go, that's the start of your ministry. It wouldn't do us any harm if we reminded ourselves many a time that that qualification is far more important than all the letters that man can have after his name. Low, woe, low and go.